Hello everyone, it's Adasha Townsend of the Feast and Fashion Podcast. I'm a veteran food and beverage journalist who's worked with some of the most notable media outlets in the world. Feast and Fashion is the intersection of food and fashion, one beautiful plate or glass at a time. With each episode, I will introduce you to fascinating, fabulous people in the culinary industry. Today, Marcus Ford joins me. He serves as a private chef for the elite and wealthy, and occasionally he's on a yacht in the Caribbean. And speaking of exotic travels, this fashion Nito's adventures are world-class. Thus far, he spent time in dozens of countries, including Morocco, and even dined at the Giorgio Armani Hotel in Abu Dhabi. The Chicago-born chef is now based in Phoenix, and he is living the life. I'm so lucky to catch him between adventures. Welcome, Chef Marcus Ford. Adasha, I'm always going to be from Chicago. That's my hometown. That's where my heart is. Right on. And you're welcome back anytime, of course. Uh, But let's talk about your wonderful, your illustrious career. You've gone from being a restaurant chef to a private chef. You are living a life of luxury. Um, So let's start talking about how it all started. Wow. I don't know if I'm living the life of luxury right now, but, uh, you know, it's been it's been rough the past couple of past year or so. But that's been for all of us in every industry. You know how the hospitality industry has been hit. But it started. I mean, wow. Way back before I even met you, I started as the story goes, I started in high school. So that's when the first time I got a check for catering and I thought, hey, I can make money off of doing something that I love. Let's keep at it. And then, of course, I had high school teachers and counselors um, advising me, like, if you know, you should do it. This is a talent of yours. Go for it. And it has blossomed slowly uh, over the years from that. Speaking of high school, from what I understand, when you were in elementary school, your banquet was canceled. So you jumped in and you catered the event. I want you to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a funny story. So, yeah, that's going back to grammar school. My eighth grade luncheon. Uh, I'll, I'll blame Mr. Hardaway. I don't know if he's still around. Hopefully he is. He thought that we just were not fit to be seen in public together. Uh-oh. So, uh, you know, there's always a few bad apples. So he canceled our luncheon, our eighth grade luncheon. And I said, you know what? Not happening. Stood up, started planning the whole thing myself. So that is like the event planning side of Chef Marcus. I didn't cater that. I had it at a Southside Banquet Hall in Chicago. I'm sure that Banquet Hall is still there, all up and down uh, the south side of Cicero in Alsop, Illinois. There's several of them. And I planned an event. I had my sister type up a letter that went out to all the parents to get the parents on board. We charged everyone. I rented a school bus. I hired a DJ. I think I went to the dollar store and got some silk flowers for centerpieces. And then to show there were no hard feelings, I still invited my eighth grade teacher and the principal. Why was it canceled? He just thought we were bad kids. Can you believe it? No, not you. He, not me. The other kids. Not okay. me being the biggest kid in the class. No, I wasn't a, you know, a threat or at all. But yeah, we were sitting around having our New York strip steaks and twice baked potatoes. At, uh, yeah. 
at uh, age 13 or 14 on a Saturday after a Saturday morning because I was told that since it wasn't legitimately a school function, they could not justify having it on a school day. And I said, that's fine. We'll do it on a Saturday. I got full cooperation from the whole class. Now, since then, since eighth grade, of course, you've had hundreds of events that you have thrown special events. I want you to talk about some of those events and some of the momentous, because I understand that eighth grade event was awesome, but I want you to talk about some of the most fabulous events that you've thrown and talk about the food and everything else you put together. So let's talk about when you and I met, because we, we've known each other for quite some time. It's, it's going on two decades at least, right? Uh-oh. Yes. So you said you met me at a restaurant in the South Loop that I was working at back in 2000, 2001. Right, of Chicago. I was, I was the executive chef there and I wasn't supposed to be. I was supposed to come in as a consultant, help them hire a chef, hire a sous chef, do all the staffing, write the menus and help them develop. Well, situations change and they had to open up. I mean, like the last minute, literally I got a phone call on a Wednesday morning early on a Wednesday morning that they needed to be open by Friday night. They said the city inspectors were coming Friday. And if they weren't open, they were going to be hit with a huge fine because, you know, there's certain permits that you need in Chicago. And well, I won't go into detail, but I had to open a restaurant in about 48 hours. What? Have you ever done anything like that before? Never. No one has. I mean, no one expects that. It was, it was really, Oh, that's the restaurant where you say we met. Now we have two different stories about how we met, but for this, for the sake of this conversation, we'll go with your story. So that restaurant, we had a kitchen, but the equipment wasn't connected. Uh, We had cooler and, and freezers, but they weren't connected. We had ovens that weren't connected. We had China, but it was still in the boxes. So it had to be washed and the dishwasher wasn't hooked up. Uh, I didn't have food. I didn't have uh, shelves to put the food on. It was so 48 hours. No, I think we had shelves that hadn't been assembled yet. In 48 hours, I had to write a menu, write all the ingredients that go with that menu, order the food, which, you know, takes a credit application through the vendors. Mm -hmm. I didn't have time to interview vendors because I had to hire a staff. I needed a sous chef. I needed multiple prep cooks. I needed dishwashers, you know, wait staff, bussers. And we had to be up and running in 48 hours. So that was uh, over the top tremendous. How did you pull it off? Barely, barely. We didn't advertise that we were open. We just unlocked the door. So that way, if someone did come, if an inspector did show up, we'd say, yeah, we're open. Why not? And they could come on in. And I think the owner invited a few people that night just to see if the equipment worked. I mean, we hadn't had a chance to test out the grill or the exhaust fan, uh, all of that. It was really, really something. But it was in an up and coming area. That area is booming now. But back then, 20 years ago, it was a struggle. Mm-hmm. So they realized my talent and my skill with doing events, not just making one steak or one piece of fish at a time. And so we put most of our hopes and dreams into throwing big media events, big splashy media events. And that's where you said you met me. Is that not true? That That is true. Okay. So seeing as that this segment is called Feast and Fashion, 
I think one of the biggest events we did there was the Moet and Shandong fashion statement. And that was where they were showing how uh, champagne and food and fashion all goes together. And there was a pretty big celebrity. I won't say his name. He wasn't in attendance that night, but his fashion line was uh, debuted in Chicago that evening. And that was a mega, mega event. And that might be the event that you were at. I, I can't recall. I really can't recall. So did that help shape your culinary point of view moving forward? I think so, because I realized I really don't like working in restaurants, <laughs> which is bad for a chef, you know, but kudos to all my brothers and sisters who do work in restaurants. My hat goes off to them. Uh, working the line on a Saturday night when tickets are coming out of that machine uncontrollably. I mean, you have no idea the amount of pressure when a general manager or floor manager opens up the floodgates and just decides, you know what, we're going to flat seat the entire dining room. We don't care about the kitchen. Uh, It's a different level of respect for those guys. I love them all to pieces, but it's not my cup of tea. That was not my last restaurant experience, but that was, uh, yeah, that kind of broke me in. Let's just put it that way. When did you hang up your restaurant apron exactly and decide to go into private dining? My uh, career started right out of culinary school in, well, actually while I was still in culinary school at hotels. And I really, really liked that. For something about if 500 people are all eating the same thing at one time, I can handle it versus 500 people all ordering something different at separate times throughout the day. It's easier for management. It's easier for cost of labor. It's easier for staffing. So I started doing that, working in hotels, Then I hit restaurants, one of which is actually I helped some private owners open in Chicago. It's still there, still doing very well on the south side of Chicago and, you know, my hometown. But I I didn't love it. And the owners of that restaurant, they were uh, what they considered to be wealthy. They had done everything in their life that they wanted to do. And they wanted to, quote unquote, and I hate this term, play restaurant. Uh Uh-uh. That really irks me when someone says, let's play restaurant. So these uh, this husband and wife couple, they had uh, some, you know, spare change laying around the house and decided to open a restaurant. And they were self-proclaimed business people, had never run a restaurant before. I was with them, I think, February till like midsummer, helping them plan everything, helping them. So it wasn't a, a last minute like my 48 hour experience. We took our time, we researched the menu, we researched the price point. I helped them develop the recipes for what they wanted versus what the neighborhood would expect or could afford. And we really put a lot of research into it. And then we opened the doors and they thought they were gonna be rich three days later. <laughs> I'm like, no, you know, it's gonna take five years to break even at least at this point. And uh, they weren't having it. And I think within a month, they sold the restaurant to a famous Chicago restaurateur who came in and said, hey, you're doing everything wrong. Who's this chef guy? He's being way overpaid. And I was. I was really being overpaid. I wasn't going to tell them that. No, for the level of food they were serving, they needed a couple of fry cooks and a couple of dishwashers. But I helped them uh, get the doors open and make a name for themselves, but didn't love it. You know, standing behind that hot line on a Friday night, 
uh, listening to unappreciative people who obviously know more than I do because I'm just a chef. Uh, you know, the customer's always right. That wears very thin with me. And uh, that was one of my last restaurant experiences uh, of private, I should say. I did two more that were corporate and each one lasted about five years. So it was, it was a pretty long stint in restaurants. But that came to an end, I think, in 2010. Private service ever since 2011. Well, from what I understand, a lot of chefs who have kind of the negative restaurant experience, some of them totally get out of the business and they go into consultation or they go into the food service side of it. Uh, what made you decide to go into private dining side, which is very high end and can be very demanding depending on your uh, your clients? And how have you made a name for yourself in that part of the industry? Well, I wasn't going to give up on food because I love it. I positively love it. There's something crazy and creative about it. Chefs are all nuts. <laughs> We're all very sensitive people. We wear our hearts on our sleeves and I'm not going to give that up. I've got a few more good years left in me. So I had to figure out how do I make this work for me? Restaurants was not my thing. I couldn't take the long hours. Uh, being six foot six, standing on your feet a lot, it wears on your legs, it wears on your lower back. So I decided to stick with food and I really pursued what I love and adore, which is catering. I like events more so than I like uh, the one-offs at a restaurant. So I had some uh, volume cooking experience from hotels and banquets. And then in Chicago, I started working with small to average size catering and event companies. And that's why I realized I really just love the food, but the grandiose event, not trapped behind uh, a curtain or behind a wall in a kitchen. I like seeing the expression on people's faces. I feel like your food is kind of like a showpiece. And it's, it's, very, it's not that it's showy, but it's just very, you know, wow. It is just very ostentatious. It's very rich. It's just opulent. And I love your tagline. What's your tagline? You might as well be opulent. I mean, that's it. If you're not doing anything else today, you might as well be opulent. So, you know, when we're done, we'll have a little martini together and just sit back and celebrate. So I, I really think that I don't just cook, I entertain. And I want to work for those who enjoy being entertained. I want to work for those who enjoy food. Now, there's a whole nother level of chefs that has a background in being a dietitian or, you know, counting the calories. And there are certain chefs that are amazing with their vegan options and their vegetarian, paleo, keto options. That's not me. <laughs> I, I make that very clear. Having a private chef is a lifestyle. It's not just another staff member. It's not like having a housekeeper or a nanny. You know, we know a lot of people with housekeepers and a lot of people with nannies, and that's pretty common. There's nothing wrong with that. But bringing in a private chef to your home, that's something pretty special. And that's a commitment because a lot of people, you know, will pick up the phone or shoot me an email and we're looking for a private chef. And what they're really looking for is a one off. They're looking for a catered dinner. It's my wife's birthday. I'm turning 40. Uh, you know, it's a girl's night out. We want a private chef. They want the chef experience without the commitment. And I do. That. 
I do that. But that's a one off. Having a private chef is someone who is going to be in your home, get to know you, which that's probably one of the most difficult things to get to know a client. What are their likes and dislikes? Uh, Someone who might have to travel with you, someone who might get to know your family. I mean, if I'm doing Christmas or Thanksgiving, the whole family is there. Someone who's kind of all up in your business. You know, <laughs> so it's it's a different lifestyle, but I appreciate those who appreciate food. I'm here to not only cook, but to entertain. You talked about traveling with, with some of your clients. I want you to talk about the travels that you have done, all the countries and how the food in all these countries that you, where you've traveled, how that's influenced your culinary point of view and your palate. Food is so important to me that it's not just whatever country I'm in or whatever city I'm in. I mean, I can find joy in street side tacos. I can find joy in a beautiful curated chef's degustation. I remember what I called my first big boy trip. I was in my mid twenties and I went to Rio de Janeiro. I was at the top of, I, I can't remember what hotel it was, but it was, I think North of Copacabana, and beautiful hotel. I think it was the Le Meridian had a hotel at the uh, restaurant at the very, very top. And I opened up the menu and I've always wanted to say this. I said, I'll have the whole left side of the menu. And the chef comes out and is like, who is this one person who just ordered like 15 items? Turns out like he, he and I had had some of the same chef instructors in the background. He's traveled. I've traveled. We knew some of the same people. We had worked for some of the same people. It just started such an interesting conversation. And mm-hmm. I said, chef, I'm not going to eat all this food. I'm only one guy. And I was a lot thinner back then. But uh, I said, I just want to experience it. So for me, the travels, it's it, the experience starts when I get on the airplane. One of my favorite flights, I went nonstop Chicago to Vienna. That was some of the best food I've ever had on a plane. I've never been on a plane before where the chef greeted me dressed in all white with the fluffy, puffy white hat and took our order as we were being seated. I mean, this is something that I thought only happened back in the 50s and 60s when they were going down the aisle with little carts offering me um, charred octopus or pickled calamari or roasted vegetables or a selection of cheeses where you just stay there and pick out which cheeses you want. And when I couldn't make up my mind, they said, sir, you can have all of it if you want. I'm like, yes, that's 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 what I want. One of each. Yes, please. So for for me, it starts when I get on the plane. I mean, what am I going to eat? Am I flying? You know, what, what's first class serving? How many courses is that? If it's transatlantic, then of course, and you get the full, the full deal. Flying from Phoenix to Chicago, I might not get such treatment. Uh, <laughs> I miss that. I miss the, uh, the convenience of flying in and out of Chicago. That's a, been a big change for me here. But you mentioned travels. I've been to maybe 40 different cities and 25, 30 different countries. And I'm not going to stop. The past year has you know, affect, affected all of us and travel. I haven't done any international travel in about two years and it's killing me. I mean, you went to Morocco and you had one of the most memorable trips I've ever seen anyone have. So that was a good trip. That was a birthday trip. And that was probably one of my last really, really big excursions. I, I flew nonstop. Chicago to Istanbul. Amazing going through the spice markets and then from Istanbul to Dubai. And in Dubai, I got to dine at the Armani Hotel. 
I didn't even know Armani had a hotel. Me I, I think, wait, is it still here? I, yeah, here's the chocolates that the chef gave me. You kept the chocolates? I kept it. I kept it. And I just noticed it when I moved here. It has an expiration date on the back. We're not going to talk about that. But it's wrapped in Armani ribbon and it's from the Armani Hotel. So, yeah, I kept that. That was an amazing, amazing dining experience. And I just ordered like, a, a, I don't know, an eight course, 10 course degustation. I wasn't interested in eating it. I just wanted to try it. And from there, Abu Dhabi, everything's gold plated. From there, Morocco. So I booked a trip to Casablanca just because of the romance of it and the movie and mm-hmm. how amazing and incredible that's going to be. And once I booked for it and paid for it, I realized I didn't want that. I wanted to go to Marrakesh and they wouldn't let me out of it because it was a package deal. So I took one of the craziest flights of my life, like at 2 a.m. to Marrakesh and got there on my actual birthday just to take a cooking class. I booked a cooking class in Marrakesh and they had to come pick me up because I was late for the group and which is another long story, but we were making a chicken tagine. Talk about that experience, a cooking class in Morocco. It was incredible. So step one, go pick out your chicken. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And they, there was, you know, I was in the markets and they were like, well, this is where we get our fresh chicken. Talk about fresh. They were still alive. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, pick out which one you want. And I'm like, I can't do that. I can't. I'll take the little one in the back with low self-esteem. It has his head down. It looks like he's having a bad day. So I'll take that one. And, you know, they wrung the neck and plucked the feathers off and put it in a bag. Well, and they didn't make was... you kill it? At no. least you didn't have to kill it. No, no, none of that. Okay. None of that. I think that costs extra to get out of it. <laughs> that is an incredible experience. So how have these... Uh, culinary adventures that you've taken a, across the globe. How has have they influenced your menus and how you how you approach your uh, clients' menus? I can write a menu and plan a party better than anyone's business, and from a different aspect, from a different point of view. When they say they want something different, I can say, "Well, when I was in Morocco, they did it this way." I, I mean, I have clients now; they think. It, food begins and food ends in Paris. That's all they want to talk about is that, oh, well, you know, we've had better in Paris. And I'm like, really? Spaghetti? Spaghetti was better in Paris? But that's what they know. So having those uh, international experiences does broaden your repertoire, broadens your palate. One of the most exciting experiences I got to uh, partake in was in Budapest. One of my first things I try to do is make friends with the concierge. Where can you get me into tonight? You know, I'm only here for two or three nights. What restaurant do you think I should go to where I can talk to the chef? Is it crazy busy? Do I need to be the first one there before they get busy? Do I need to be the last one there so you can actually spend some time with me? And the chef at one of the palaces in Budapest, actually on the Buddha side of the Danube, took me into the kitchen late at night and just prepared like a really simple vegetarian dish for me after I'd already had like six courses, but I got a chance to, you know, get that on video and capture him, like the weight, like his preparations, that was cool. And then maybe I shouldn't say the name of the hotel, but in Vienna, I went to an amazing restaurant right across from the cathedral. I got there at opening just so I could uh, video and film all the ingredients, see the way the chef was preparing his food at the special of the evening. 
And as soon as a celebrity walked in, they made me shut my camera off. They were very private about it. They said, you cannot do this. So I just discreetly took pictures of the food at my table, which now is commonplace. We all do that. But back then, I felt I was being a big deal. Speaking of opulence and over-the-top things, talk about your most, the most lavish event that you've ever thrown. Uh, there's been a, a few. Uh, 2020 doesn't count. So 2019 was off the charts. I did a party for Dom Perignon, and I got a phone call from someone who gave my number to someone, to someone, to someone else. And they said, there's an event and we're told that you're the guy in Chicago who does splashy events. Now they hired a chef in New York to curate this experience. That chef in New York had to fly to Chicago to produce the event, but he wasn't bringing his entire team with him. He was bringing a butler and a sous chef. So the phone call was, Chef Marcus, we need you to, to hire 30 models that we can train to be waiters. I just laughed. I said, I can barely train a waiter to be a waiter. <laughs> like that's it's it's on my nerves. Just the service, you know, the food could be great if we can't get it out the kitchen. What's the point? So training wait staff is a thing. When you were talking about consulting, yes, I do that too. I started hiring immediately because the event was in eight days or seven days. I finally spoke to the chef directly, found out he wanted male models. I assumed when people call me to ask for models for an event, Chicago, you want pretty girls at the front door holding glasses of champagne. This is a New York event. We need guys dressed in all black serving. So I have to find 30 men, very tall order. That's difficult. Mm -hmm. And then he wanted eight chefs. So me plus seven of my guys came in and ran the entire event for him. And that was amazing. That was the Dom Perignon P2 which, as you know, you're an aficionado on many levels. Uh, well, we always get the Dom Perignon 10 years after it was released. So in 2020, we're drinking the 2010. But then they have certain uh, years, certain vintages, where they hold back maybe 20 or 25%, and they age it again. And then they re-release that years and years later. So in 2019, we were drinking the 2002 P2. It had just been released. And my team and I were some of the first people. We were the first people in Chicago to taste it. What did it taste like? The sweetened tears of angels. <laughs> what kind of foods did you pair with the champagne? So the chef of New York did all the pairings. Okay. It was really, really funny. My boys were comparing his food to my food. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> the experience was tremendous. Uh, it'll be something I never will forget. Uh, that same year, I did a party at right on Oak Street for Van Cleef in their showroom that was nothing but champagne and caviar. And I mean, buckets of caviar. They sent me home with like this much, but I was staying in a hotel. Like how much can you put in your mini bar and eat for breakfast? Right. Before? I mean, it's a shame when you have to waste your breakfast caviar, isn't it, Adasha? You know. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. You know. But I was off to my next event that same night, but they were putting me up in a swanky hotel on Michigan Avenue, which I'd never experienced Michigan Avenue hotels because I live there. Why would I stay in a hotel if I live in Chicago? But then I was in Phoenix and they flew me back in. So got a chance to feel like a tourist for once. Okay. Speaking of, you know, over the top luxury, I understand you have 10 chef coats, but 35 tuxedos. Now, how 36. does that happen? 
36. One new one just came in. Oh, okay. Excuse me. <laughs> and tuxedos and dinner jackets. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's because of my body type. Uh, if I felt, if I was confident enough to wear uh, a tank top and sweatpants, I probably would. But I feel more confident in a blazer. So I have suits. I don't have to worry about if it's going to match. It's a suit. It already matches. And I already know what tie goes with it. I already know what shoes go with it. So that's just, it just became my style. I mean, I have pictures of me as a child in blazers and that just carried over into my adulthood. I love it. I love the look. And when you're doing big, over-the-top, splashy events, I'm not going to be in a chef coat all night long. As soon as that dessert is served, I'm doing a quick change. Outfit number one, outfit number two. So they're just stockpiled here because now I'm in the Valley of the Sun where people just don't dress up as much. Most chefs, of course, they wear very casual shoes that are supposed to be uh, practical when they're in the kitchen. Uh, What kind of shoes do you wear in the kitchen and out of the kitchen? So in culinary school, I saw the guys wearing clogs, those chef clogs that are about this tall. And being, you know, six foot six, 200 centimeters tall, I always said, I don't need that. Those are for short people. I'll never be caught dead in those. But being middle-aged with back problems and kitchens are designed for people who are shorter and you're always kind of hunched over. Now I do wear those clogs. There's a famous brand that most chefs wear. I adored them until they switched the country of origin in manufacturing. So now they're not, uh, the sizing is different. So I do wear clogs in the kitchen. I have to, I have to have, you know, getting old is not easy. Getting old is expensive. Now I have $400 custom made orthotics that go in my kitchen shoes that have to be slip resistant and grease resistant, et cetera. And that makes me another two and a half inches taller. So it's not, uh, you know, easy when you're trying to cook on a jet or cook on a yacht. It depends on chef. Right. It depends on how big your plane is before I accept, accept the job. What is it like cooking on yachts and private planes? That just sounds insanely glamorous. It's just like your job. <laughs> now look out the window and there's people out there having fun and you're still working. That's the only difference. Instead of you looking out your window and seeing your front lawn or seeing a skyline view or seeing, you know, now I'm looking out the window and I see water and you're trapped and you can't get off. You can't go home at night. You can't you know, go take a shower and, and go out for a cocktail and get a greasy slice of Chicago style pizza. You are trapped. People say it's glamorous. I don't see where the glamour is. It sounds like it, but it's, it's hard work being a private chef. It's demanding because people of a certain echelon feel that they deserve it. And if they want to have you prepare all their favorites, and then say, never mind. I think I want um, a peanut butter sandwich instead. You have to just drop your head and say, all right, I just spent 12 hours creating this and it's going to go in the garbage. And I'll be back in 10 minutes with that peanut butter sandwich. Do you have any advice, Marcus, uh, for someone who wants to get in the business, do what you do? You just said that it's not as glamorous as you think. It's hard work. But is there any additional advice you'd like to give to people who want to go into the private chef business? The biggest thing for me, the turning stone, I would say, would be uh, hiring an agent. Meeting the right people is not easy. But through an agency, you're already fully vetted. 
They've already done the background checks, the drug tests, the physicals, and you will present yourself as more polished and more trustworthy coming from an agency. And the agency will only place you with the best, most trustworthy people, especially in the UHNW crowd. And what's the UNHW crowd again? UHNW, ultra high net worth. Got so it. to be in the, to be considered ultra high net worth, you have to be uh, worth at least 30 million or more. And that fortunately, I'm very, I'm very privileged to say that's my clientele. Wow. That's awesome. I don't care what you say. Your, your life just sounds so amazing and so glamorous. And I'm so proud of you because, you know, like you said, we've known each other for more than 20 years and I'm so proud of where your career has gone. Are we out of time or can we talk about how I think I met you? Okay, well, so <laughs> how you uh, met me. <laughs> okay, Marcus. Well, it has been nice talking to you. It's been nice catching up with you. We are going to talk about that offline, of course. Okay. But <laughs> thank you so much, Marcus. It has been fantastic chatting with you. You are uh, just fabulous. You keep it up. I'm so proud of you, and we will chat soon. Thank you so much. Cheers to you and your success. I've watched your career just blossom and take off, and you are, I mean, kudos to you. You're you're incredible. You're amazing. Thank you for this opportunity. I feel privileged and humbled to even be a part of it. Stop it. Okay. Well, take care, Marcus, and you stay safe. Until next time, my dear. Take care. Well, that does it for this episode. I want to thank my guest, Chef Marcus Ford, again for joining me. We're back next Friday with another outstanding, talented, and of course, stylish culinary personality you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for listening to Feast and Fashion on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm your host, Adasha Townsend. Meet me back here next Friday.